Pascha is the great feast of the church, the central feast of the church and the central kirigma or proclamation of the gospel, Christ risen from the dead. Resurrection, the Pascha, Easter, however you're calling it, it's the centerpiece of our faith. Welcome to the journey to Pascha. This is not a trip from one place to another. Though it may appear to be a journey through time, it's much more than that. To truly understand it, we need to view it as a voyage to a different world. For Christ's death and resurrection transcend all earthly dimensions, altering the very nature of reality by literally changing how we creatures relate to God. So in Christ we receive this new identity. We have become a new people, a new creation. So this light given to us at the resurrection is a sign that we have this new life, this new reality within us. You may be a faithful Orthodox Christian who has gone on the journey dozens, perhaps scores of times. If so, you will certainly enjoy and appreciate hearing the story again as the popular hymn proclaims. I love to tell the story. For those who know it best, seem hungering and thirsty to hear it like the rest. The story may be new to you, or perhaps you're familiar with it from what you've seen on TV or read online. You may even have doubts or be somebody who only goes to church on Christmas and Easter. That's okay, for as St. Paul tells Timothy, if we are faithless, he remains faithful. He cannot deny himself. Wherever you are, whoever you are, we hope you'll come to appreciate and understand this historic occasion, an epic event that changed everything and gave us the right to become children of God, even to those who believe in his name. We're glad you're joining us on this profound journey through Holy Week and into the new world of Pascha. In this presentation, you may hear the celebration of Christ's resurrection referred to as Easter. However, the traditional name for this feast of feasts is Pascha, the Greek word for Passover. This is because the original church was really a continuation of Hebrew practice, with one important distinction. They believed that Jesus was the Messiah that the prophets had predicted and they longed for. In fact, Christ... Christos in Greek literally means anointed one, which is also precisely what Messiah means. Early on, the date on which the church celebrated Pascha was disputed. One of the first church councils established the directive, still in place, which sets it on the first Sunday after the first full moon after the vernal equinox. This date occasionally coincides with the celebration of Easter in the Western Christian traditions, but is often later, as much as several weeks. For many faithful Orthodox Christians, the journey to Pascha began at the start of Great Lent, over 40 days ago. In the earliest church, Pascha was preceded by a brief fast of one or two days. This grew to a one-week fast in the 3rd century, which in the 4th century became known as Holy and Great Week. 
Over the ensuing centuries, numerous monastic and popular traditions were added to the fast, which evolved into the current 40-day season. Today's fast incorporates numerous services, practices, and guidelines meant to strengthen the faithful during this arduous but rewarding journey. We participate in Holy Week services, first of all, by going to them. I mean, if you're not there, it's hard to participate. Let's be honest. You have to go. The second thing is follow along. Listen to the hymns being sung. Watch what's being done ritually by the clergy and the celebrants. Read the text. I mean, fortunately, for 50, 60 years now, we've had books that tell us all the hymns. And then to participate in it, to connect to the story in some way. Just don't follow along to wait to see, is it almost over? But follow along to see, what is this story I'm being told? How is it being reflected on? Because it's not just saying, and now Jesus did this and Judas did that. It's helping us think it through. As we explore Holy Week, you will note something odd. Each service is shifted to an earlier time. For example, the service of Othros, which you may also hear called Matins, is ordinarily the morning service. In fact, Matins comes from the Latin word for morning. Vespers is the evening service. However, during Holy Week, Vesper services are shifted from the evening to the morning, and Orthros services are observed in the evening of the previous day. Although it is unclear when and why this shift took place, evidence indicates that the custom was in place by the 18th century. Some scholars consider this shift a distortion of appropriate practice and believe the traditional times should be observed, though there are those who suggest this shift symbolizes the inverted character of Holy Week. The services of Holy Week as they were originally developed are attached to the basic daily cycle of worship in the church meaning Vespers and Orthros as the chief services of the day and the other services that have come in, especially through the monastic usages. But now we find ourselves in the liturgical cycle of Holy Week being ahead of ourselves, where the evening services have been moved to the morning and the morning services to the evening before. So I was in a process of anticipating. One of the things that I think the church should reconsider and think seriously about is returning to the regular order of services for Holy Week. Lazarus Saturday marks the end of the 40-day fast of Great Lent and the beginning of Holy Week. Wine and oil are permitted on Lazarus Saturday. Though the services and stories of this weekend form a joyful punctuation to the somber period leading up to Pascha, they also echo several of the same themes. The Gospel of John recalls the conversation Christ has with Martha regarding her brother Lazarus. Jesus said to her, Your brother will rise again. Martha said to him, I know that he will rise again in the resurrection at the last day. Jesus said to her, 
I am the resurrection and the life. He who believes in me, though he may die, he shall live. And whoever lives and believes in me shall never die. Do you believe this? The story of Lazarus should be a familiar one. Mary and Martha send word to Jesus asking him to come and heal their brother. But Jesus is delayed and Lazarus dies. By the time Jesus finally arrives, Lazarus has been dead several days. And when the Lord tells those present to remove the stone from the grave, they object, fearing the stench of rotting flesh. Nevertheless, they comply, and at Christ's command, Lazarus emerges from the tomb wrapped in grave clothes. Christ's dramatic resurrection of Lazarus prefigures his own resurrection with one significant difference. Though temporarily defeated, death will eventually rear its grotesque head, taking Lazarus, the friend for whom Christ wept, once again to the grave. Palm Sunday, a major feast of the church, stands as a bright spot in our long, solemn journey. Wine, oil, and fish are permitted on Palm Sunday. The icon of the feast depicts Christ's entrance into Jerusalem. And though the throngs hail him as their king, laying down palm branches and coats as a royal carpet for the procession, he enters riding on the humblest of beasts, a donkey. The Son and Word of the Father, like him, without beginning and eternal, has come today to the city of Jerusalem, seated on a dumb beast, on a foal, from fear, the cherubim dare not gaze upon him, yet the children honor him with palms and branches, and mystically they sing a hymn of praise. Hosanna in the highest, Hosanna to the Son of David, who has come to save from error all mankind. This absurd juxtaposition shows how wrong his followers have got it. Christ is not some conquering emperor nor is he the regal messiah they seek. His kingdom is not of this earth. Like his life, death, and resurrection, Christ's entrance into Jerusalem forces us to recognize that power is found in weakness and glory in humility. For a shining moment, the people hail him as their king. This brief interlude of honor is not to last. The bridegroom matins of Holy Monday takes place Palm Sunday evening and shortly the throngs that hailed him will turn on him, clamoring for his death. Generally, the services of Holy Week, especially those of Great Monday, Tuesday, and Wednesday, are expanded versions of the normal weekly and daily cycles of services. As in most Orthodox liturgical practice, the content of these services are a blend of monastic practice and that of the great church, Hagia Sophia, in Constantinople. The relatively festive interlude of the weekend closes on Palm Sunday evening with the bridegroom matins, the first service of Holy Week proper. The transition to a somber tone is unmistakable. The black or often purple vestments, the subdued lighting, the restrained chanting, all these reflect the serious events we are about to relive and the ideas we will contemplate in its services. Though they are not as directly tied to the sequence of events as Holy Thursday through Sunday, 
the themes and references of Holy Monday, Tuesday, and Wednesday explore the final days of Christ's ministry. A strict fast is observed on these three days. Their services are similar, with the exception of the unction or anointing service. The central service of these days, the bridegroom or nymphias service in the Greek tradition, is named after the parable of the ten virgins. In this parable, the bridegroom represents Christ, and we, Christ's church, are his bride. In the Garden of Gethsemane, just before his betrayal by Judas, Christ prays to the Father, that they may be one, even as I and the Father are one. The analogy of the bridegroom symbolizes an intimate, mystical union of Christ with us, his body. This union, this communion, is our ultimate human destiny and purpose. Preparing for this union through repentance and submission is the point of these services. The icon of Christ as the bridegroom shows him not dressed in radiant resplendence, but in a position of humility, with his hands bound. This is how he presents himself, not as a heroic conqueror, but as a suffering servant. Yet he will not accept a bride who is unprepared, nor one who has been unfaithful to him. As his bride, we prepare by thoroughly and sincerely repenting for our own sins. Though we may no longer adorn ourselves with the traditional sackcloth and ashes that signified mourning and repentance in the biblical era, God recognizes and respects true repentance. Recapping the path of Great Lent, the bridegroom services offer us the opportunity to recognize our sinfulness and prepare for the coming events when we are offered the opportunity to share in Christ's death and resurrection. This day illuminates the beginnings of the sufferings of the Lord. Come, therefore, O friends, let us meet together with hymns. For the Creator comes, humbling himself to the cross, to trial and to blows, and to the judgment of Pilate. Moreover, smitten on the head by a servant, he submits to all things that he may save mankind. Wherefore, let us cry, O merciful Christ our God, grant forgiveness of sins to those who worship in faith thy holy passion. The Bridegroom Matins of Great Monday focuses on two stories. The Old Testament story of Joseph tells of a man of great virtue and honor who, though he was mistreated and thought dead, rose to become a great leader. The fathers of the church have seen Joseph as one of the many precursors to Christ in the Old Testament. To his father's great sorrow, he was betrayed and abandoned by his brothers. Yet through faithfulness and sacrifice, he came to be the means by which the descendants of Abraham were saved. The second story is of Christ cursing the barren fig tree. The fathers tell us this is a parable representing the Jews who at the time rejected Christ and sought his death, but it is a parable for us too. We have a responsibility to be faithful, bearing the fruit of true Christian faith. But the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, long-suffering, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Against such there is no law.
Barrenness is a sign of a false faith. This parable asks of us, what kind of fruit do we bear? On Great and Holy Tuesday, we recall the parable of the talents. This story describes a master who gives gifts to each of his three servants before leaving for a journey. Upon his return, he responds to what they have done with their gifts. The meaning of the parable is clear. Like that of the fig tree, we are responsible to make good use of that which we have been given. Behold, O my soul, the Master has confided to thee a talent. Receive the favor with fear. Lend to him who gave. Distribute to the poor, and acquire for thyself thy Lord as thy friend, that when he shall come in glory, thou mayst stand on his right hand and hear his blessed voice. Enter, my servant, into the joy of thy Lord. O my Savior, deem me the wanderer, worthy of this through thy great mercy. The Holy Tuesday service also explores the parable of the ten virgins, the story that provides the name for these services. Ten virgins wait for the bridegroom who has been delayed. Five of them have not prepared with enough oil. Their lamps run out and they must leave to get more. While they are gone, the bridegroom arrives, and so they miss the wedding ceremony. The message of this parable is likewise clear. We must always be prepared by keeping ourselves pure in heart. Holy Wednesday Orthros recalls the poignant story of the prostitute who poured precious oil on Christ's feet, then washed them with her own hair. The evocative hymn of Cassiani brings the story to life. The woman who had fallen into many sins recognizes thy Godhead, O Lord. She takes upon herself the duty of a myrrh-bearer and makes ready the myrrh of mourning before thy entombment. I will fervently embrace thy sacred feet and wipe them again with the tresses of the hair of my head, thy feet at whose sound Eve hid herself for fear when she heard thee walking in paradise in the cool of the day. O my Savior, and soul saver, who can trace out the multitude of my sins and the abysses of thy judgment. Do not disregard me, thy servant, O thou whose mercy is boundless. The counterpoint to this woman's humble act of sacrifice is Judas, who complained about her generosity, while at the same time preparing to betray his master. She chose a path of repentance. He chose one of selfishness and paid the price for it. Like them, we are continuously offered the choice between faithfulness and betrayal. The Orthodox tradition of fasting on Wednesday stands as a permanent reminder of Judas's treachery and a hedge against our own pride. The service of holy unction or anointing with oil for sickness is carried out on Holy Wednesday. Though history is not clear why it falls on this day, its presence keeps us mindful of our own weaknesses as well as those around us. Anointing with holy oil is a blessing for the sick, and whether physical or spiritual, we are all suffering from some malady. The sacrament is typically administered to everyone who wishes to partake. Merely recognizing our need for healing is an act of repentance at an important point midway through Holy Week. To sin literally means to miss the mark. 
At first glance, this doesn't seem too bad. We're only human, and so we often miss the mark. The problem is that if we miss the mark and keep going, we get farther and farther from our intended destination. Sin is insidious like that. What seems like just a little sin can pervert and distort us, staining and polluting our souls, driving us farther and farther from God. We must make continuous adjustments in our trajectory through the process of repentance.